Hello, and welcome to episode number 141 of A Mic on the Podium, with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor who founded his first orchestra in 1976 and has since founded three more. He's held title positions in France, Belgium, Italy, Portugal, Russia, Mexico and Chile. And in January 2023, he became the music director of the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires. It's a pleasure to welcome Jan Latham Koenig. Jan, it is wonderful to meet you and to see you and to chat with you today. How are you? Um, extremely well. Good. Very good. Now, listeners know that I always do some homework. I either go to your website or your agent's website or the minefield that is Wikipedia. And I always ask at this point how you know, your musical, earliest musical experiences. Do you come from a musical family? And the reason for bringing up my homework is I cannot find any mention of what instrument you might have learned when you were a child. So uh, um, how did music first come into your life? I came from... Uh, I'm, I, I don't have any English blood at all. Yeah. Uh, my father was French and my mother is half Danish and half Polish. And they both came from, shall we say, privileged cultured backgrounds. Mm. So that although they weren't professional musicians, my father sang uh, amateurly, I mean, uh, leader and things, and my mother played the piano. And I think for that generation and their children, it was a completely normal thing to, uh, yeah. for you to start the piano when you were four, three. Um, and I had two older sisters who started before me, but they didn't show, I would say, such interest as I did. And dare I say it, I probably showed a natural talent and even at that very young age, a certain ambition to do better in music uh, uh, that probably made some effect uh, or had some effect uh, on my on my parents so that they it was something that they adored and mm. so they clearly pushed me mm. yes i mean you know start as you said you know it was encouraged uh, and if there was a piano in the house people you know children would start playing the piano at, at young ages you know i didn't start until i was nine uh the violin but again, that was it was there to do, whereas today it's not. You know, a, you know, a local music teacher came to my school and offered us violin lessons, and I went for it. You know, it was a golden period of, uh, I think, probably starting in 1945. You know, with the Arts Council, the creation of the NYO, there was a very enlightened period when music was considered extremely important uh, for all children, whatever background they came from. And, uh, and, and we will speak chronologically about my life, but one thing that I've noticed has unbelievably changed. Uh, and I give you a, a very simple example. Uh, when I went to the Royal College of Music in 1970, I was one of, or, or no, before that, when I was in the National Youth Orchestra, from 1966 to 1970, I was one of a tiny handful of musicians who were being privately educated. Mm. When I went to the Royal College of Music, again, I was in a tiny proportion that had been privately educated. Many years later, when I was a guest of honour at the graduation ceremony of the Royal College of Music and giving the, the prizes, 
this proportion had changed considerably. And uh, one of my recent projects, uh, which unfortunately for the moment has had to be on hold because of the political situation, we'll talk about that later, but it was mm. the Benjamin Britten Shostakovich Orchestra, which was a, a coming together of uh, the best young British and Russian musicians. And when we did auditions uh, at the London uh, Colleges of Music, uh, again, the proportion was even higher. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I've seen it in Birmingham uh, with the school's orchestra and with the city of Birmingham's own symphony orchestra, uh, youth orchestra. You know, the proportion of, of students uh, from privately educated schools or schools of privilege in Birmingham, like grammar schools, where, you know, you have to... Mm. It is... If they don't apply, it's hardly impossible to find an orchestra. You just answered one of my next questions, which was... Or orchestral instruments. Now I'm assuming, therefore, you did learn an orchestral instrument because you played in the NYO. So, uh, piano to start with. What was your what was violin. your orchestral instrument? The violin. Yes. And I was very lucky because uh, where I lived in Hampstead, uh, well, quite near Hampstead, uh, was the father of my piano teacher. In fact, uh, my piano teacher was also a violinist called Gillian Hepton, and she was a member of the. Birmingham Symphony oh, wow. for many, many years. Yeah. We're talking about, I would say, the six, the sixties, seventies. Um, but her father was then a member of the uh, RPO hmm. and had been before that, I think, a founder member of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, uh, Albert Hepton. And he then was sitting next to Raymond Cohen, leading the RPO, hmm. and he took me. I started when I was seven, and he took me to many concerts. Unfortunately, I just missed Beecham. Oh. I've gone, but he died in 1961. Uh, but he took me and gave me tickets to many concerts in the early and mid-60s. And I cannot tell you what an effect that had on me. I bet, I bet. yeah. Uh, the, talking of effect, you said you were in the National Youth Orchestra for four years. Can you remember who conducted you? I'm sure you can. Um, Absolutely. And, and at uh, this stage, was in, was conducting anything, did you think of it being as something you might want to try? Yes, but I was very much aware that to be a conductor, you had to be a very good practical musician first. And so mm. I was very assiduous in continuing with the piano, which was always my principal instrument, and the violin. But those years in the NYO were absolutely unforgettable. Mm. And when I started my conducting career, any piece that we had studied in the NYU, I could have conducted the next day without any problems. Mm. It's because the thoroughness with which we started. Were you in the NYU as well? No, I was in the Kent County Youth Orchestra, but at the time, again, talking about golden periods, it was when county youth orchestras were very, very similar in standard to the NYO. And, you know, yes. we were doing things like Marla II and Elgar II and the Glaglytic Mass and we and uh, Belshazzar's Feast. And and as you just said, I nodded and smiled when you said it. Any of those pieces that we studied then, and subsequently any of the pieces I've then taught to a youth orchestra, yes. you know, if the phone rang now and said, you've got 10 minutes, get into Symphony Hall Birmingham and conduct you know, uh, the Lutoswavsky Concerto for Orchestra, I'll be there. I'll, I'll, yeah, I could I'll pick up my score and I don't even need to look at it in the car. You know, it, it, that's what it's like, isn't it? Uh, yes. I mean, I will tell you exactly who we had as conductors. Uh, 
the first year was Rudolf Schwarz. Yes. The second year was Irving Fjernstad. The third year was uh, uh, Hugo Rignold. Oh, wow. Was then principal of the city of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And then the last uh, conductor I had was Pierre Boulez, where wow. we did the, the Rite of Spring and the La Mer. Mm. Uh, unforgettable experiences. And one unique cultural, political experience that I had connected to the NYO, but not of it, is worth repeating because nothing will, nothing, this particular event that I'm about to relate will never be repeated uh, in the history of the world or music in such a way. And I will explain. Um, The very first year of the NYO, our repertoire was a Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra and uh, Shostakovich's 10th Symphony. And uh, in, and then in the second year, it was Dvorak's Cello Concerto and Tchaikovsky's 5th Symphony and Young Person's Guide. And I'm talking about the summer, 1968. And we had, you know, concerts in Manchester and Liverpool. And I think in Aberdeen, uh, and then the final concert was going to be in the Fairfield Hall, Croydon. But the schedule was such that we had a concert in Manchester and then took, very excitingly, for a young boy, uh, we took the overnight train from Manchester to Houston. And because we had this free day between arriving overnight in Houston and that day was free and then the next day was the Fairfield Halls, the NYO very generously and very imaginatively had arranged for us to go to a prom concert that evening. And they'd bought you know, 120 tickets uh, in the choir oh. to hear the first concert of the first tour of the USSR State Symphony Orchestra conducted by the legendary Yevgeny Svetlanov with oh. Rostropovich as soloist. And this was what was had been advertised, you know, for many months as one of the most exciting events. And they were going to do three proms, and then a tour of Great Britain, and then come back to the festival hall in early September. And we were, and the reason they organised this was because the program was Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony and Dvorak's hmm. Cello Concerto and Ruslan and Ludmila Overture. <clears throat> So we were so excited, and I think it was the fir- wasn't the first time, but one of the first times I'd seen uh, Rostropovich play, and Svetlanov, of course, no one had seen before. Oh. He, you know, he only did tour with his own orchestra, and very rarely in the West. And so the excitement was quite intense. And I just noticed, when we arrived in Houston Station, there was a very strange atmosphere in the station. And um, I noticed a lot of people going to W.H. Smith's and buying newspapers. And somehow, I, either I bought one or one of my friends bought one, and or someone told me the news that the previous night, the Russians had invaded Czechoslovakia. Oh. Oh. You know, this was August 68. 
And the timing could not have been more bizarre because that very evening was going to be a concert of the first concert of the first tour of the USSR states in New York. And in a way, my, what I'm telling you is not a million miles away from events today. <laughs> no, not at all. That's, that's what's making me, yeah, making me think. And we were sure the concert would be cancelled, but they had somehow found out that it was not going to be cancelled. Mm. And so we turned up, and it was an extraordinary scene. There were policemen all over the Albert Hall, I mean, outside. Mm. And there were huge demonstrations by masses of people with placards saying, Russians out of Czechoslovakia, Russians out of Czechoslovakia. And the promers, they were going in, but they were being sort of controlled by police. Anyway, mm. we had seats, so we went to our seats. And there was absolute mayhem uh, in the Albert Hall because a lot of promers, both in the arena and in the balcony, had gone in and they weren't musicians at all. They weren't interested in music. They were no. people simply wanting to demonstrate. So there was absolute, I mean, when it, everybody was shouting against the Russians. And this, we know, quarter past seven, 20 past seven, 25 past seven. At half past seven, the orchestra in their tails came in. Shouting continued. Mm. Svetlanov came on and launched with great bravado into the Lusan and Ludmila overture, which I would say temporarily silenced. Um, huh, yeah. But at the end, they started again screaming and shouting. And then with unbearable irony, Rostropovich, who was a well-known dissident then, mm. came out to play, of all concerti, the Dvořák Chalukov. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a, a filmmaker could not have invented this. No, no, definitely not. But of course, most of the demonstrators, they went on shouting, but everybody else was going, shh, shh, because probably they had no idea who either Dvořák or Rostropovich were. No. Uh, but somehow, after the beginning, they they quietened down. It was more difficult to hear the beginning, because, as you know, the Dvořák cello concerto starts very quietly. Uh, but then at the end, there was the most hysterical applause. I think even the non-musical demonstrators had uh, somehow managed uh, to comprehend that... Uh, you know, Dvořák was a Czech composer or something. Yes, yeah. And so there was a hysterical applause. I have to say, the performance itself was quite out of this world. I mean, yeah. talk about yeah. a political situation um, augmenting the musical tension, but in a very positive way. And mm. In fact, on YouTube, I think you can hear of this concert just the Dvořák. Yeah, uh, I bet. And, yeah. uh, and after the performance, there was the most hysterical applause. And then Rostropovich decided to play an encore. And he played, I think, the one he always played, which was a very melancholy saraband from one of the Bach cello suites. 
But then the emotion got too strong for him. Mm. And he started crying. And in the middle of the piece, he just put his bow down. And in a sort of eerie silence, he just exited the stage. And there was this absolutely weird silence. Mm. There was the, the interval. And then all the demonstrations started again. And then the orchestra came back and they started Shostakovich 10. Now, as you know, about the first five minutes of Shostakovich 10 are pianissimo. Very and quiet. You, yeah. you couldn't hear it at all. But I was absolutely fascinated, to, even as a young boy, to observe what was going on. Namely, because don't forget, I was sitting behind the orchestra looking yes. at the conductor. Whatever else you may think of Svetlano, and I actually think he was a great conductor, his nerve was absolutely breathtaking. He was conducting the beginning as if nothing was going on. And can you imagine how difficult it must have been for him to hear the musicians, not to mention for the musicians themselves? And then gradually, the shouting petered out because oh. the demonstrators realized that they weren't getting it. Yeah, they weren't going to stop for nothing. Yeah. No. And this, and then the performance went on magnificently, absolutely magnificently. And then at the end, there was huge applause to the extent that they played some wonderful encore and then left. And I was musing on this for so long afterwards. And I came to the conclusion, quite bizarrely, that music and its unquenchable power had, and the, the quality of the performance and the music making had actually conquered politics. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that probably music has an unparalleled capacity to bring people together, dare I say it, even to heal wounds. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, your stories are, are wonderful, and but you know, it's the sort of thing we need right now in the world um, for music to start healing things. Um, but yeah, wonderful, wonderful stories. I have to go on to conducting yes. and ask you when it started. You went to the Royal College of Music. I'm assuming as a pianist because you said you were a first study pianist, but mm. also a violinist. When did conducting start for you as um, something that you wanted to do, and who taught you it? You weren't allowed then to do the conducting course in your first year. Mm. And so I entered the Royal College in September 1970, and uh, piano was my first subject. Uh, and actually singing was my second. I had no voice, mm. but I wanted to study singing for a very specific reason, which I will come to in a moment. So as soon as I could, I applied to join the course, which I think was easier to do than it is now. Uh, and it was Vernon Handley, uh, then, who was the main conductor of the first orchestra and the concert choir. And so I met him. And 
it was very obvious that there was absolutely no chemistry between us. Hmm. Uh, he was actually rather unpleasant and rude to me, and he, he asked me to conduct something, I think, with the first orchestra, and I had zero experience. I think <laughs> it was Brahms tragic overture. And then he, I, know, I saw him a day or so afterwards, and he said, forget it, just forget it. No chance. You have no physical coordination at all, and this is not for you. Wow. And this, this, to say that it disturbed me, uh, is the wrong word. Don't forget, I was only uh, 17. It enraged me, I think. Mm. <laughs> is, mm. It would me right, as well. <laughs> the right, uh, and I thought, how dare you say this? You know, I've never conducted before. You know, okay, it probably wasn't very good, but you know, I regard myself as a talented musician. Uh, you know, I just won the Royal Overseas League Prize mm -hmm. as a pianist. You know, I mean, there was something very unpleasant. Now, fortunately, uh, he left uh, oh. almost immediately afterwards. And the next, uh, he was succeeded as a conducting teacher by someone who could not have been more different and who became a, a real mentor to me, which was Norman Del Mar. Yes, I did wonder whether Norman was going to be the next person in the door, because having spoken to quite a few people, Simon Halsey for one, and I can think of at least one other who was taught by Norman. And and as you said, there, there didn't seem to be an unpleasant bone in his body. And neither I was taught by his son, Jonathan. So, And he was exactly the same. Yes, well, Jonathan was actually a pupil with me of the father. At oh, wow. Well. Yeah. <laughs> it was a rather curious thing. Uh, Norman, unpleasant? No, he was a very kind person. Uh, he had a wonderful eccentricity. Mm. And he knew an enormous amount about conducting and was unbelievably generous, both with his time and with his manner towards the students. I mean, you know, he, he much preferred teaching them at his house rather than the college, because he had two pianos in his main drawing room, so we could do a lot of work with the two pianos. Um, and his knowledge of repertoire and, uh, and you know, the mechanics of con conducting, it, it was second to none, really. Mm. And he, what was interesting, of course, we always went to his rehearsals with the orchestra at the Royal College of Music, and we sat behind, and then he would say, oh, get this right for me. And we would have to go on the podium and, you know, get it right for him. Mm -hmm. And he loved arguing, which was uh, a very stimulating thing. Uh, and so it, it became com sometimes competitions who knew the most about this and that. And there was a, dare I say it now, with the, you know, a distance of almost 50 years, a very intellectual approach to conducting, mm. which, of course, is to some extent necessary. And, of course, we admired him as a conductor because he was so professional, unbelievably professional. Mm. Curiously enough, 
and this is a very strange thing to say, I was never so impressed with him as when he was actually teaching. Mm. Um, and what do I mean by this was aware that he had to show something and show it very clearly to the students. He made always a special effort that possibly wasn't always there when he was. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I was absolutely fascinated, and the proof of this is that he also helped me in, early in my career as a pianist. He would engage me to do concerts all over the place because you know concerti, um, and he remained. And you know, he would hold three-day courses at his Cornwall home for us. And he would invite us all and we would all stay in his house and he would feed us and go for walks with us. You know, it was something I'm sure today would not happen in such a way. Mm, mm, uh, mm. I mean, if I ever did something like this, I would do that, absolutely. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, because I regarded, I have never taught, I've given master classes, but I regarded almost as my responsibility to impart my experience and what I know to the next generation and would gladly do so. It's something I'm doing right now with um link to this podcast is my Patreon page. And I've got six conductors who I give lessons to via Zoom or personally. But basically, my phone is always on to them. You know, you can ask me anything, you can, you, you know, anything you want, and I will give you my honest answer. Uh, and I think, you know, you get to that point in your life, don't you, when you think, well, actually, it's it shouldn't be all about me. It's time to give something back, and it's time to teach people Literally. what you've learned. You know, and and um, you know, in, and I went on asking him things, uh, well into the eighties, uh, mm. you know, and until in the last years he became rather ill. Mm. You know, he died very early. He was, I would say, he was seventy-four, seventy-three, mm. um, much too soon, mm. and. Uh, you know, in the end, what do you remember from the teaching? You remember certain key phrases. You remember, rather than very specific ways of conducting a piece, because where he was very good, and he contrasted himself with Malcolm Sargent, who I think was a professor either at the college or the academy or Guildhall somewhere, he said Sergeant drilled all his students to be little sergeants. Mm -hmm. And Norman Delmar was never wanted to do that. He wanted to bring out the personality of each student. And uh, you know, just certain phrases which, uh, you know, I mean, just said, young, never ever forget, you have to look like the music all the time. I know it sounds a rather banal thing to say, but actually it's not. It's not. It's very important. Absolutely important. Yes. And then in accompanying, I mean, this was something he was very, very um, keen on doing, and he was an extremely good accompanist. He explained to us how you have to be receptive all the time, but maintaining the flexibility and one of the things I really learned for him from him which of course in my operatic career becomes second to none is the flexibility of accompaniment mm. this I mean now we mustn't get too technical but uh, 
one of the things he explained was, again, to put it in a very banal way, to be keeping moving all the mm. time. Uh, which, you know, all conductors have their own way of making music, but it allowed the flexibility of reacting to unexpected events, should we put it like this. But it also helps, you know, if the the beat is always moving, uh, it, it means that your hands can be quick should you need to react to something that's either going on on stage to, with the singers or with the pianist behind you, that you're doing it all orally, not like a violinist that's still right next to you can see the bow. You can follow it, you know, visually. But if your bow, stick is always moving, then you can quickly adjust and your hands can be quick. And that's so important in good accompany. Well, precisely, because the moment you stop, you have to give the upbeat to start again. Yes. Yeah. And it wastes crucial time shall we yes say. well absolutely just a fraction of a second you can then end up being behind where you need to be and of course we in we need to be actually in front and anticipating to get the orchestra to go with the soloist so you know yeah you, you, stopping the beat or being too jerky or not flowing between each beat is a is very very bad thing you know yeah. when you're accompanying but it's easy to say <laughs> yeah yes, it is yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and then I profited enormously from this in the sense that then, which was rather unusual, I was very interested in contemporary music mm. and the uh, 20th century at a time when the colleges were extraordinarily conservative then. You know? mm. Of course, there was a contemporary music group run by Edwin Roxburgh, but it was sort of looked down upon as something slightly dirty by most of the uh, professors. Having said that, well, my first um, director of music was very conservative, but he came essentially more or less from the 19th century. It was Sir Keith Faulkner, you know, a great baritone singer of the 20s and 30s. Um, but the second one was Sir David Wilcox. Oh. And though he came from the choral tradition, he was very open. And I said to Norman, wouldn't it be marvellous if we could do for the first time ever in the Royal College of Music, Messiaen's Turangalila Symphony? Oh. And he said, yes, we must do it. You, know, you must play the piano part and we'll do it. And somehow we managed to do it. Uh, and he, the college invited Messiaen himself, who for some reason couldn't come, but inspired by the fact that we were doing it, the college, some weeks, I think, before, and I was already playing, that was the year, I'm talking about 1975, it was the year when I won the Chapel Gold Medal uh, oh. as a pianist, and one of the key pieces I played was uh, one of the Vin Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus, oh. and uh, because I was really keen on Messiaen, and I was, as I still am. And... um. David Wilcox awarded the Royal Philharmon uh, the uh, Royal College of Music's gold medal to Messiaen and invited him for a big ceremony. And then he said to me, Jan, you know, I can't do the ceremony without hearing some Messiaen music. Oh. And you play a lot, you know, you've done the gold medal with this. Would you mind playing some? You know, I was so young, 21. Oh. I said, yes, of course. So we came this ceremony and I had to play this where literally the composer is sitting 
one and a half meters away from him. <laughs> and his wife sitting beside him, who as Yvon Loriot, yes. was the first interpreter of his music, right beside him. Yeah, no pressure I'd then. Never be able to do that. <laughs> I would, I would dissolve in nerves. But when you're very young, you have a sort of fearless quality about you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wish it would remain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to link the word fearless with contemporary music, I suspect, because uh, one of the things that keeps popping up through your life and career from around this time onwards is founding ensembles or starting ensembles. Mm -hmm. And the first one you founded in 1976 called the Koenig Ensemble. I'm assuming, uh, I, I'm, tell me if I'm wrong, but that was that to do contemporary music to start with? Uh, and later, um, you know, after you've answered this, uh, I'm going to ask you about, the differences between founding your own orchestra as a student or as a, a recently graduated student compared to what you've done later, which is at the, the request of a government to found an orchestra. So, yes. you know, well, the first one, the Koenig Ensemble, tell me about it. Well, uh, this was in 1976. I was just leaving the Royal College and one of my new obsessions was uh, Janacek's music. Mm. I had read that he had done a concert. Janacek only came to London once in 1926, and because uh, 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 a very rich English lady uh, was, for some reason, very interested in Eastern European contemporary music and had heard of him. Don't forget, in 26, he was pretty well known in in Czechoslovakia and yeah. in Germany and in Vienna. And so she invited him uh, and organized a concert of his chamber music in the Wigmore Hall. Oh. Uh, and typically connected to Janacek, you know, everything was very strange and eccentric and <laughs> not normal. And everything went wrong with this concert. Um, it, because it turned out it was in the middle of the only general strike that has <laughs> happened in Great Britain. <laughs> <It was laughs> May 1926. Uh, and so nobody knew about the concert because the newspapers were on strike. And those who had known couldn't have got to it because there was no transport. <laughs> so there was almost nobody there. And then the chamber musicians uh, had been chosen by this lady. And, and Janacek, being a very fiery Moravian, was terribly disappointed with the English musicians, hmm. uh, interestingly, hmm. and was very unhappy with the concert. The whole thing was a disastrous experience. Um, and I thought, I want to form this ensemble. I want to conduct, start conducting, and a little bit like Pierre Boulez did, you know, who created Domaine Musical, hmm. initially to conduct his own music, but to get conducting experience. Yes. I had to make a tiny tangent here, which is that people who want to be conductors, you are in a terribly difficult situation to start a career as a conductor, because it is the one profession within the music profession that you cannot practice at home. No. It is no. unique. Every single instrumentalist can practice. 
okay even the organists they have to go to the churches or something but or now of course they can probably have an electronic keyboard in their house mm. but you can compose at home you can mm. play practice eight hours a day cannot magically uh, rustle up an orchestra in your living room mm. and so you are condemned to be inexperienced mm. and no one will ever want to engage you because you are inexperienced but how do you find the experience? It is a really terrible sort of catch-22 situation, which I found myself in. And so I decided to form this ensemble and gradually invest the money I earned as a pianist, because I was doing, you know, quite a lot of concerts oh. as a way of getting crucial conducting experience and inviting all my friends from college and elsewhere, NYO, X. Uh, to take part and what was very interesting was again I'm sure it's different now you know I would then I was very very um, entrepreneurial and adventurous so I would I would do everything it was a bit like Berlioz in his memoirs if he wanted to put on a concert he had to do everything for it oh. I mean, oh. and so I ended up doing everything and so I would uh, uh, I would hire the whole I would put the programs together. I would possibly work with someone to handle the publicity. I would ask my friends to play. And this was the first one. And we recreated the Janacek program, oh. uh, more or less. We didn't do a string quartet, but we did Mladi, which I conducted, the concertino, the piano and six instruments, which I played and conducted, the violin sonata, uh, possibly one or two other things. And then I would, you know, have big series the personal room and then something which i will never forget about amongst all these young players friends who agreed to take part in the ensemble they realized for their careers you know being my age you know 21 22 20 it was extremely prestigious to play at the wigmore hall or the personal room or queen elizabeth hall so they never asked a fee this is something I will never forget. Oh, because oh. Of course, they needed the experience as well. Yeah. And it was this marvelous sort of nothing is impossible atmosphere. But I decided in order to make a mark as both a chamber music musician and as a budding conductor, you know, I had to choose pieces that will involve conducting and also quite difficult. Otherwise, there was oh. no point. So, you know, we did a wonderfully eclectic repertoire Sometimes it was, you know, the Mozart Grand Partita. Sometimes it was Janacek, you know, Mladi. Sometimes, and then, you know, Kurt Weil, Kleine Dreigroschenmusik, Schoenberg, you know, Chamber Symphony for 15 instruments. Wow. You know, and I admit shamelessly, I was getting crucial experience. Of course. Yeah. But I think everybody was profiting from it in, oh. in some way. And so, you know, I didn't feel guilty. And also, why not, you know? Well, the list of orchestras that you've been music director, artistic director of is amazing. But what stands out from that list is working in, I reckon, at least 10 different countries. Um, you know, I, Bruges, in Flanders Symphony Orchestra, Bruges, 
uh, Turin, Strasbourg, Mexico City, Santiago in Chile, Moscow, um, and now um, Buenos Aires in Argentina. I'd love to know your your thoughts over your career on orchestral attitudes how you encountered them over the years, first of all, because even from when I first started playing in the profession in 1991 to the present day, attitudes have changed in the UK, how they've changed over the time that you've spent conducting, and also from country to country. There must be big, big, big differences. I mean, we're going to come to Argentina very soon because it's a place I've conducted on many occasions and I know what it's like. But, you know, I wonder whether you could tell us uh, over your career of being music director and artistic director, the differences you've discovered. Everyone is totally different. Yeah. Um, let's take Santiago. Santiago was a very special case. Oh. I, I'll start with this because uh, I don't think this has happened. Well, it probably has happened in other places, but not that I know of. Uh, I made my debut there in 1989, uh, conducting Don Giovanni. Oh. And, uh, the orchestra was not particularly good. It was a very good cast, because the, the then director, who remained a very close friend, uh, Andres Rodriguez, was supremely gifted at getting fantastic casts for no money, because they had a very limited budget. Oh. And then I went conducting regularly there in in Santiago. I was then asked to do Electra in 2006. And I arrived, and the first morning's rehearsal, I arrived, no, I arrived very early in the morning, I remember, you know, after an overnight flight. And I came to the concert hall, and I was expecting to go to a, my first orchestral rehearsal and then production in the afternoon. And I was met by a very morose Andres Rodriguez, who said, Jan, we have a major problem. And I said, what is it? And he said, we had a scandal here last week with the orchestra. And I said, what happened? He said, it was a gala performance with, I don't know, either the present president in or some terribly important event. It was Otello, I think, uh -huh. but it was the, the most important performance because, you know, some of those performances are bought by huge institutions with their guests. And it's, you know, being a very hierarchical society in Santiago, most of those guests were leading members of Chilean society. And the orchestra went on strike when the audience was already there. Oh, wow. Wow. And because they are in the middle of a major dispute with the town, because it's Teatro Municipal, the opera belongs to the town. Oh. And the mayor and they are in a huge dispute over their new contracts. And I said, ah, but how does that affect us? And he said, they're not going to play anymore in this theater until this problem is solved. I said, what do you mean? He said, they're not reliable. I'm not going to, uh, we're not firing them, oh. but not going to play any more performances until, I don't know, they agree not to strike or they sign a new contract or something. Yeah. I didn't want to get involved in that because really I shouldn't. And uh, I said, well, what are we going to do? But then he asked, I have to say, a very stupid question, which he knew was stupid, but he, he, oh. he asked it. He, he asked, he said, look, 
Is there any way you could play Electra with two pianos? And <laughs> I, mean, I, I think he, even he knew it was stupid, but I think Muti had done the opening night of Traviata at La Scala, playing the piano himself because the orchestra had gone on strike. So, yeah, yeah. you know, he thought, okay, we can do it. Um, huh. I, I said, no. And then he said, look, we've got the premiere in three weeks. Could you find an orchestra who can just come and rehearse, you know, and play in three? I said, no, that really isn't possible. I mean, it's yeah. He said, well, what are we going to do? We can't cancel, we can't, you know, we, we can't have the theatre blind, can we have the subscriptions? And I said, well, I think the only thing you can do is to change opera. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? I said, the only thing you can do is to send the cast home, and you'll have to pay them. And if the stage director is in agreement, because this was all going to be with projections, it, it, it was a brilliant Argentinian director called uh, Marcelo Lombardero and his designer. And I said, the only thing you can do is change the opera to a chamber opera. Mm. And I recommend the turn of the screw because there's no chorus, only six singers and 13 instrumentalists. Yes. I will find 13 international instrumentalists. I'll find six singers. And if you can persuade Marcelo Lombardero to, to do this, we'll do it. And he said, well, is it possible? I said, leave it to me. Yes. He persuaded Marcelo Lombardero to completely rethink the opera. And, and I went away for a week because there was no point in staying because there was nothing to do. No. And so I went and I auditioned some singers in New York, and then I called some singers. I'd done it recently somewhere else, and and I called some friends from all over the world, and basically we put an ensemble together and six singers, and we opened on the same day with the turn of the screw. Brilliant. Absolutely then, brilliant. But they had to cancel the next opera because it wasn't me, and it was, I think, Gioconda. But then there was Trovatore and... Onegin, and I was meant to be doing the Trovatore. And he said, look, we cannot cancel the rest of the season. Is there anything you can do? And I said, okay, I'll see what I can do. So I called a friend of mine in Poland, and uh, he arranged for the Royal Opera House of Kraków come and play two operas there. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and then, I think they did the Don Giovanni, but then it got to crunch time, and the mayor said to the orchestra, you're either going to sign the new contracts by October the 31st, or we're going to fire you all. Don't forget, this was Latin America, not oh. Europe. And it seems that 70% didn't sign, and even more, I think 80% didn't sign, and they were fired, and 20% stayed. And then Andre said, Jan, you're going to be music director from next season. There's only one small problem. Um, uh, you have to find an orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like founding your own orchestra again, even though it isn't, if you know what I mean. Um... It was in November. And but they, like, as you know, all Latin American, I mean, Southern American seasons, they finish in December yes. and they start again in March. So this was like November. And he said, look, you know, you, you have carte blanche to travel, audition, and but 
were opening in March with, I think it was Tristan or, or, or something. Oh. So I said, okay. And so I went and auditioned all around the world and founded, founded a new orchestra. Yeah, yeah. And we had a marvellous time, and I'm sure some of them are still there. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that was very special. That yeah. was very, very special. And and interestingly, there was no, they didn't allow the new orchestra, I'm sure it's changed now, to have a union because yeah. they were so traumatised by the previous experience. Um, but Strasbourg was the total opposite. There you had the most protected, unionized orchestra, where the union representatives were all powerful, and the directors, the administrative directors, were very frightened of them. Oh. Uh, and so there, we had to be. Everything had to be negotiated with them, and I was slightly surprised at the immense power that they welded. I think now it would be different. Oh. But uh, also, the you know, the rules about sick leave were so generous. and um, But it was a wonderful experience because there were no financial problems at all. Oh. And as artistic director of both the opera and the orchestra, I could program exactly what I liked not having to worry and the the deputy mayor who was you like was my boss said don't worry about audiences you have to bring this into the late 20th century and early 21st century because this orchestra is too old-fashioned and same repertoire same people it needs a breath of fresh air and more interesting repertoire so oh. i did this oh. and, and and we had a wonderful time and we made some wonderful recordings but you know, there was a very sometimes there was a discipline problem, and uh, it wasn't easy. Oh, oh. I'm going to link in. Uh, well, you said it earlier on your love of politics, but also South America. Um, and, you know, maybe funding. I don't know that much about it. And talk about the Tetra Colon. It's a place, Buenos Aires, I absolutely love. I've worked with the Philharmonic three times, which is lives in the same building. Uh, and I've also worked with the Instituto, which is a wonderful thing. Know, um, an orchestra, but also the, for the ballet dancers, for the singers, for scene designers. For all. The, the, it's basically a... a, a proving ground or a college for that filters up into the main opera house you start january 23 so just after christmas um yeah. as the well, music february, director of february because february. January is holiday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but as the media director of teatro colon are you looking forward to it i mean i'm assuming you speak very good spanish because of you know, your time down in that part of the world are yeah. you looking forward to it and and working with musicians have of such passion i mean that's why i love going there there is such passion in that city and in that country yes um well as it happens it was very strange because with the previous administration uh i had put together a project which happened in september in october oh. which was a, a double bill uh of woodville uh, seven deadly sins and uh, Bartok's Bluebeard's Castle. And this was a, a new production of 
Sophie Hunter, uh, uh, a very talented British uh, stage director, operatic stage director, and wife of Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, right, okay. And uh, so we put together a beautiful new production for them, but a sort of as bit as a sort of guest production, although we produced it there because they needed something between two other things but that was all organized with the previous administration and i was then appointed by the new administration which took power in march or april in a way it was very convenient and nice that i started not as music director but still as a guest conductor last september a couple of months ago uh, with this thing and i enjoyed it immensely but immensely uh and uh, I look forward so much to working with them. I mean, you know, uh, it's a huge institution. Oh, yeah. it's disadvantages as well as advantages in, in being so, you know, it's very bureaucratic. Yes. And so many employees. And uh, sometimes it's rather difficult to navigate your way. But the beauty of the theatre oh. is so extreme that somehow it conquers everything else. And Absolutely. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. But again, I've only now just done one thing. And so uh, you should ask me all these questions really <laughs> next year. <laughs> I've really got my feet under the table, so to speak. Yes, yeah. And so I'm assuming because of the title, you'll be working quite a lot with the orchestra Estable, which for dear listeners, that's the orchestra that works uh, with the in the opera side of... Yes. It's not like other opera houses where the opera orchestra then becomes a, con- um, a symphonic orchestra. They have there are two there. There's the orchestra Estabile, and then there's the Buenos Aires Philharmonic. Yes, yeah, interesting yeah. enough, both orchestras do ballet. Ah, right, okay, yeah. And the Instituto Orchestra does ballet. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so uh, there's going to be. Uh, so I, I will do one ballet, I will do uh, some concerts, I will do something with the Instituto, and I will do uh, three three operas. Yeah. But I will be there probably between six and seven months. Yeah. Well, we should have a serious conversation about this as soon as I've started. The other thing is they plan very, very, very late. Mm. I mean, they've planned 23 because I think tomorrow is the press conference, but they haven't begun to plan 24 and they won't begin to do that until next February. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to go back to the beauty and also the passion. Um, the beauty, for those who don't know, um, look it up, dear listener. The outside, but also the inside of the Teatro Colón is one of the most oh. beautiful opera houses in the world. Passion. Uh, I, I, I One time I was working there with the Instituto, and I went to see an opening night of Lohengrin, and, I, and I've never seen such passion from an audience in my life. Uh, there was booing, there was cheering, there was people throwing programmes, there was all sorts. But the last time I worked there was with the Philharmonic, and we did Shostakovich 8. And as uh, Jan definitely knows, and audience, uh, the list, dear listeners, you, you need to know, that symphony finishes extremely quietly, and at the end, there was a silence in that room of people just taking it in, who then erupted into applause. But they gave it such intense listening. Um, the audiences there are amazing. 
Um, but the beauty of the place, it's staggering. Every time I go there, I always take videos and pictures and put them up on social media because it's just, and the, acoustically as well, it works very well for a symphony orchestra sitting on the stage as it, and, and also for the orchestra in the pit. Yes. It is a jewel. Yes, and I want to add one thing, which was we did four performances of um, the Quartweil and the Bartok, and this is a house, as you know, of 2,800 seats. Yes. 3,000. All four performances of that repertoire were totally sold out. Mm. And mm. I'm not sure there are many other towns where that would happen. No, no. No, no it's... A music-loving yeah. nation, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Um, Jan, you don't know this, but there is an 11th question, which I've asked every conductor, which is to do with score study. Now, mm. your career as a lot of opera, which you may have a different system to learning an opera than you do to, say, a symphony. But I always ask, how do you do it? Do you sit down at the piano uh, and work your way through it? Or, or do you use your inner ear? Do you start big and go small? Or do you start on page one and work to the end? And for us geeks, and I'm one of them, are you a red, blue, black um, marker-inner of things, a scribbler of notes, or do you prefer your scores to be virginally white? There is no one answer. No. You, because it depends. If it's a complicated score, I will be doing a lot of marking. Oh. I play at the piano, particularly opera, uh, but most of my study is with my inner ear and just the score, away oh. from any instrument. Uh, a huge amount of thinking goes on. Yes. Uh, just between me and the score, looking at the problems, just just thinking. It's... Um, you know, it, some pianists, I think it was Glenn Gould, but I'm not sure, who said that he practiced most of the time actually away from the piano. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I know this sounds bizarre, but uh, of course, it's very different when you have a piano. <laughs> I, I mean, that is stranger because obviously you need to keep the technical precision by practicing. I'm sure he did that as well. But I think what he meant was he thought about his piano, a great deal about his interpretation away from the piano. Mm. Now, as a conductor, was you, you have to do this all the time because you don't then go and practice in your living room with the orchestra. No. It, it is it, it just thinking and thinking and looking and wondering and re-wondering and then perhaps doing some interesting historical research depending on the piece. Mm. Um, I'll give you one example. I was doing Mahler One recently on a tour in Great Britain with the Zagreb Philharmonic. And Mahler One had done a lot before, but I was, I don't know why, but I got hold of the idea that, well, I knew that Mengelberg had been very close to Mahler and you know, they right. discussed interpretations, he had invited Mahler frequently to Amsterdam mm. to conduct his symphonies, including the first. And, you know, and, he, and Mengelberg had noted how he wanted it done in his score and, and, and his own, in his own handwriting, his changes. And, and I decided to see whether I could actually see the score that Mendel, Mendel, Mengelberg had used. And after a bit of 
deft research. Uh, I located it uh, in The Hague, and the charming lady in charge of Mengelberg's scores said, no problem, I'll send you it in digital form and sent oh. it. And it was absolutely fascinating because for a very specific reason, which was when you listen, and I was interested in how interpretations of that symphony by people who had been close to Mahler uh, had sounded because the traditional you know, with, let, me, let me put it a very different way. People consider Mahler as he was a supremely gifted conductor and a practical man of the orchestra, that if anybody would write clearly exactly what they wanted, uh, he would write everything into the score and oh. print it exactly as he wanted. And musicians themselves would expect the orchestra, the conductor, to adhere to everything that Mahler has written in the score. Oh. But this is a far too simplistic way of looking at it, because a lot of things that, for instance, Bruno Walter did, I said, why does he do this? You know, it's, it's so different to what Mahler wrote. But then when I saw the Mengelberg score, where he'd notated actually what Mahler did when he was rehearsing, as opposed to what he had written, oh. You, you and he both realized that the score was just the beginning blueprint for something far more creative. Mm -hmm. A lot of what Mahler wanted, he actually did not put in the score. And he changed a great deal after it had been printed. But of course, was not going to, no publisher would agree to the expense. Yeah. And in any case, his mind would change constantly. You, when you look at Mahler's character, he was very impulsive, oh. and his decisions were only valid for the moment he said, you know, he couldn't understand why, if you had an argument with someone, they would hold a grudge against you, because your emotion, what you said, or, or your beliefs, which possibly uh, led to the argument, he believed they were only valid at the time you said it, and you may well then change oh. your minds. And, this happened frequently with Mahler and Schoenberg. They used to have these furious arguments, and then Schoenberg would not call on him. And then he, he would say to his wife, why haven't they called? And he was genuinely surprised that they might have been offended. Yeah, you, yeah. And, and this, this goes absolutely, um, and then when I know what we know from witnesses and people who've written about his conducting, that he was very, he would change all the time. Now, I only say this to show how you must never take the score at face value. Mm. There are exceptions. And again, it all depends on the approach to their music of their composers. Now I'm going to get into very, very important stuff, because this is crucial as a conductor when it comes to interpretation. Let's take Brahms. I will tell you two stories which confirm how your attitude to tempo fluctuations, uh, dynamics must be uh, influenced. Brahms expected his interpreters to interpret. 
Mm. Once heard the performance of his clarinet quintet, and he genuinely thought it was the greatest performance he'd ever heard of it. And he went to the quintet afterward and said, it could not be done in any other way. This is absolutely what I want. And then it so happened that some weeks, months later, he went to another performance, which was totally different. <laughs> but he was equally convinced by it. And he said the same thing. Mm. And he meant it both times. But to show that there is not one way of looking at, there's no set in stone interpretation. Uh, then we also know that there was an occasion, I'm not talking about uh, flexibility of tempo. Oh. Uh, there was an occasion when the conductor was ill conducting one of Brahms' symphonies, and Brahms was asked to take over, but with very little rehearsal, perhaps one. And the performance went very well, but afterwards one of his friends came to the form and said, look, I enjoyed it enormously. Were you happy with it? And do you know what Brahms answered? He said, yes, but I only had one rehearsal, so I couldn't do anything like the number of Accelerandi and Ritardandi that I wanted to do. <laughs> Very significant. Um, and so let's take Beethoven. He was once asked, you know, should there be one tempo in the movement of your symphony or concerto? And he said, no, at least 10, but they should only be discernible by a very sensitive ear. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so this always makes me think, that particularly the German school of composers, I'm talking about Schumann, Brahms, Beethoven, even Mozart, and uh, not to mention Wagner, uh, they lived in a non-mechanical age, oh. and they expected a wonderful creativity uh, in the interpretation of their music, particularly when it came to tempo. You know, uh, uh, Wagner, a composer that uh, you know, I absolutely worship, uh, he was mocked by Berlioz for saying, ah, oh, Wagner, sempre tempo rubato. <laughs> uh, now, this comes to my next point. Look at the French school. Completely different. French, the great French composers, in my opinion, and from what I've read and what I feel looking at their scores, their scores, I'm talking about Debussy, Ravel, Poulenc, they write, and Poulenc a bit less for reasons that are slightly more complicated to explain, but they write mission, they write what they want to hear. Oh. And they don't want, they want your conductor or the player to observe their markings. Berlioz was marked. Oh, absolutely. About the way, and he was very precise, you know, about the fact he would give dynamic, different dynamics to different instruments in, in an orchestra, which was then completely revolutionary, yes. totally revolutionary, and not something that Beethoven would never do. And uh, this leads me to understand that, and also having worked in different countries, and see, when I, uh, when I was in Moscow, uh, their attitude to their own music 
it was always not free, but there was a a lack of a rigidity and mm. the importance of the emotional aspect, which was second to none. And and so interpretation has to be thought through, but never over-intellectualized. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it will become arid and and it, the music will not be communicated sufficiently well to the uh, to the public. When I talk about the over-intellectualization of music, you see, some composers, I conduct very little, almost nothing of the second Viennese school uh, for the reasons that they do not speak to me as a conductor as pieces because they are composers where the intellect has triumphed over the communicative emotional uh, aspect. Oh. I give you an example. I once conducted and studied with Norman Delmar uh, the double concerto of Berg, uh, you know, for violin, piano, and 13 instruments. And he said, Look at the last movement. And I said, Yes. And he said, what is extraordinary about it? And I was just beginning my study of it. And I said, look, I don't really know. I'm just starting. He said, it is a perfect palindrome. And he he said, go to the final page of the movement and read it backwards. And it's exactly the same as reading it forwards. Now, this this is an accomplishment of highest genius. But... It begs the question, oh. is there not meant to be read, but to be performed, oh. where it's going to be heard? How is this relevant in the actual hearing of the piece? Now, oh, absolutely. it could be that I'm wrong, and it could be that people notice this palindromic uh, element in listening to the last movement, in which case uh, I beg forgiveness. But the intellect... Of course, you need a great intellect to be a conductor because you decipher the score to analyze it. You know, don't think uh, I'm in any way speaking badly about or, or minimizing the, the intellectual qualities to be a conductor. But it must never trump the importance of the sensualization of the spiritual element in the piece. And the spiritual element in the sensualization of the piece that in the end must dominate in order to communicate its value sufficiently to the listener. At this point, Jan and I had a short discussion about listening and performing before the mechanical age and how a tolerance of difference may well have disappeared since then. I've made this into a short bonus mini-episode for subscribers to my Patreon page. You can subscribe to my Patreon page for as little as £5 a month. You can also pay annually and get a 10% discount. And, if you're a student, feel free to contact me and I will raise that discount further for you. Not only will you have access to all of the previous bonus mini-episodes attached to this podcast, you can listen to around 30 hours of interviews with prominent musicians, managers, agents and soloists. You can read my very popular tour diaries that I write when I go and guest conduct abroad, as well as articles about conducting and conductors. 
just head to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Jan Latham Koenig. Jan, it's that time of the podcast where we must traverse the 10 questions. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? You're not referring to music. In it can be any sound you like. If you wish to be musical, be musical. If you don't, don't. The sound I hate most is music of any type in a public place, particularly restaurant. Muzak, as they call it. Yes, I agree. Horrible. Even if it's beautiful music. Yeah. No. Uh, music I love most, I mean, sounds that I love most, I will tell you. But I mean, this, it applies to a very specific moment about uh, two and a half years ago, right at the beginning of lockdown. I live uh, in central London, uh, atop a very beautiful garden, and with a total lockdown, Never have I heard such a beautiful bird song as during those days of lockdown. And of course, naturally, being a Messiaen addict, mm, yes. I was thinking of Messiaen, and I, I realized why he had this love for bird song. It was the most beautiful sounds I have ever heard. Number three, if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Almost certainly, partly reading partly physical exercise and partly stimulating conversation with friends brilliant that's i mean it's it's a good thing about having conducted all over the world is i would imagine you have friends in most places yes yeah. <laughs> lucky you um i have to say going back to buenos aires you know having been there many many times it's the one place I I know that I'm never going to have an evening off because I can fill it up with meetings with friends. And, exactly. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Number four, can you name your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Depends on the repertoire. Yes. Sorry. Uh, Fort Wengler was a genius uh, in certain repertoire that will never be uh, repeated, but he was more than a conductor. He was really a musical philosopher. Mm. Uh, uh, so I, um, it's very different. Uh, uh, Toscanini for some Verdi mm. and Puccini, uh, Ancher for some marvelous Janacek. I mean, there's so many. There were so many great conductors. Uh, Charles Munch for a lot of the French repertoire. Uh, I could go on and on, but I would oh. say those three uh, particularly uh, appealed to me. Serafine also for a lot of the Italian repertoire. Yes, that's a name that hasn't come up often, if ever, as an answer to that question in, in 120 odd episodes. Serafine, not at all. Um, but you've been repertoire specific, and that has been a, a, a modus operandi of previous interviewees when we come to question number five, which some people find much more difficult. I wonder whether it would be repertoire specific for you to name your favourite current conductor or conductors. My answer is, uh, I don't know. <laughs> the reason I don't know is, possibly unlike my colleagues, I actually generally don't go to concerts or other performances 
I prefer to do other things. Um, and perhaps there's a reason, this is a silly reason possibly, but uh, I don't wish to be influenced in my attitudes. I will, get, I will tell you a tiny story about Janacek, which is in a way relevant to what I'm telling you. He, when he, in, in his early career, he was conducting a choir and doing it very well. And he was just beginning to compose. And then he decided to stop conducting the choir and any, anything instrumental that he may have already done. And he was asked, why are you stopping? And he said, because I cannot fail to be influenced by the music I'm conducting in my compositions. And I don't wish this. I want to be absolutely original in my own thought. Well, what's interesting about your answer is that you're the first person to say that you don't know and give that specific reason, uh, which is why I will obviously allow it. I've had one person refuse to answer it and never, you never gave a reason, and others because they found it too difficult because there are too many. But, it, you know, you're right. I mean, it's been said that many times on this podcast. Conductors only ever meet each other normally in an airport as one's leaving or they're both going off in different directions or at motorway service stations as on their journeys home late at night. But we don't often have time to go to other people's concerts. And, you know, if you're if you're studying music and you don't want to listen to recordings, that's another way of, you know, uh, of influencing your own thoughts. So I will I will I, I smilingly give you I don't know as, as a very good answer. <laughs> Number six, what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? The Tote Stadt of Cornwall. Oh, wow. And, and I recorded it as well. Yeah. I think to date it was the hardest work I conducted. Why would that be? I mean, I know I've got a, a score of it behind me, which I um, happened upon. I'll put it that way. Uh, I know it's incredibly difficult for the orchestra and for the singers. A lot of high tenor writing and all the way through. But um, what what was it? What made it so hard? Everything was changing all the time. There was very almost no structure. Even if he wrote it when he was about twenty. It's over-orchestrated, so much going on. It was relentless. And I remember the players telling me afterwards, we feel as if we played Electra and Zalome in one evening. Mm. It was just exhausting, exhausting. Mm. Well, I can well imagine it. It's a piece I'm desperate to conduct because I absolutely adore Corn Gold. But, uh, but whenever I've opened up that you're score clearly, through it... <laughs> not in the camp of the critic who said unkindly, more corn than gold in his music. Yes, that that was after the violin concerto. That was a New York critic said that, didn't he? Um, no, I, I love his music. Uh, I did the symphony. I've done, I'll do as much as I can. But yeah, every time I open the score, I look at it and go, well, maybe not yet. Um, and, and, you're, and all you've done is put me off a bit more now. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Very strange question, because... Uh, I'm a very bad packer and I just take the minimum I need which is just necessary clothes I, I'm in one respect I'm incredibly modern and in that I do 98% of my reading on my mobile phone mm. for weight reasons uh, and I take obviously a baton and uh, I don't take anything else um, so, 
there is no answer. I do know what you mean. I mean, the the, the 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 idea behind the question was to find out, you know, what what you know whether somebody takes a yoga mat or running shoes for whatever. Or um, I, yeah, I do go to the gyms in the hotels yeah. I'm in, and I take yeah. my gym kit. But I wouldn't, in any case, whatever. If I this is again, I'm a bit absent-minded. Yeah. Uh, when I forget something, I just sort of buy it where I arrive. And so yeah, yeah. I'm actually not terribly bothered. I'm a very relaxed traveller, probably because I've done it so much. Uh, I don't get stressed travelling. Uh, yeah. Well, it's very similar uh, in some respects to Simon Halsey's answer way, way, way back in episode nine when he said, well, I, I don't have an answer for that because I, I, I basically have a base in all of the places I work, and I filled it with all the stuff I need. So he basically said he doesn't need, you know, like you, packing is is a non essential thing. So I will give you that as an answer. That basically, so yeah. <laughs> well, uh, an episode that was only just released recently, Grant Llewellyn. I had to give him the answer mobile phone because he's lost the use of his right arm through having a stroke. He needs his phone. Um, to pay for things and to, he needs his phone to, to it's a part of you know it's more than just a, a, an entertaining part of his life it's now a necessity, a necessity so yeah if you don't need anything fine i'll let you have the answer number eight what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor uh, i don't quite understand uh, the question it's basically a lot it was give give people an excuse to complain about traveling or to complain about i have needing an agent or to say that you know we should speak more before concerts or that we should you know i mean if you're happy absolutely happy with how the conducting profession and world is no one so, is, but, but, no, no artist yeah. is ever happy about no anything. i mean it's all, all artists have a literally of complaints uh but I find complaining about things. I'm going to, I'll give you a strange question. I mean, a strange answer. Mm. Which it's pointless to complain about anything unless you actually have the means yourself to change it. Which ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time you cannot do. And therefore, complaining about things is as useless. As actually complaining about the weather. That's mm. my answer. <laughs> it's very true, though. I mean, you know, um, almost everything that we do is is affected by you know other people's decisions or whatever else. And yeah, um, it's very true. It is very true. Next question. Number <laughs> number nine. Uh, this can be something you you've always wanted to do it could be a fantasy it could be anything you like what profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have liked to have attempted uh, there i'm actually very clear uh, i would have gone into diplomacy uh, or politics or both yeah not at all uh, and are you constantly keeping abreast with political situations uh Around the world, or uh, you know, uh, yes, you, and, have you, and, uh, have you uh, ever been active? Have you ever joined a political party? Uh, I was very briefly active in the eighties, and actually, I considered a long, rather absurdly, along my conducting career to become a member of the European Parliament. Uh, and actually, uh, I was more or less chosen to fight a seat 
uh, but uh, I declined uh, oh. because I realized it was totally, in fact, they said, look, I don't think in the end uh, this is going to work because you're, you're constantly busy conducting. We would very much like you. And I said, fully understood. And then I never, I never did it again. But it's something which has always fascinated me. It's, it's connected with an obsessive love of 20th century world history, but in particular European history. Mm, uh, mm. which I'm constantly reading. Um, and by the way, I think this is very important as a conductor to have this historical perspective, not just on music, but on the world. And But again, this is me. There's so many things that I don't know much about that uh, I, I don't care. You know, I've never noticed that someone has thought less of me because I've answered to a question I don't know. Mm. I don't think it's less of you at all. Uh, I like the answer. I don't know. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm a lover of 20th century history, um, mainly because of the repertoire. I think I like to conduct more than other stuff. But you know, the music that was written has to have been impacted by what was going on in the world, not just in their private lives, but around them. And I think you know, you, it informs us and it steers us. And it's, it's important. I absolutely agree with you. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Without any doubt, a hordnik, which is a cold beetroot soup, uh, mainly served in Poland and Lithuania. Mm. And uh, to wash it down? Uh, probably a very, very good uh, red wine. What a brilliant, brilliant choice. Can I tell you why it's a brilliant choice? For my 50th, my wife and I went to a restaurant called Long Clume in the Lake District, uh, Simon Rogan. It's, a, it's now a three Michelin-starred restaurant. I'm not, a, I didn't think I was a lover of beetroot. And the second course, it was one of those 12, men, you know, 12 course tasting menus, was a cold beetroot soup. I prefer. Was it, but was it the Polish one? It wasn't the Polish one, but what I can tell you is, I and I suspect you're exactly the same. I can still taste that now. It was so good. It was just delicious. Yeah, um, the hodnik, if it's well made, is unique because there's bits of boiled egg, there's a lot of dill, there's sour milk, there's all sorts of other things. Uh, I will try it. Um, I'd like to thank you very much for the last couple of hours chatting. It's been brilliant. Loved your stories. And I hope very soon, maybe if you know we're in Buenos Aires one day or even in central London, we can get together and have another chat. Thank you, Jan, very much. Nothing would give me greater pleasure. Thank you so much for having had me on your programme. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a conductor who's held title positions in Germany and his native Switzerland, but is probably better known now as being one of the foremost teachers of conducting in the world today. His pupils include Eduardo Strausser and Kerem Hassan, both of which I've interviewed for this podcast, and Mirga Grajinita-Tilar, until recently the music director of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. But until then, bye-bye.